Well, good morning. Been a while since I've been in this position. <laughs> yeah, don't don't go there yet. Wait till the message is done. Oh, uh, we we had a little last minute addition to this, and so I'm having to kind of wing this off the cuff here a little bit. But um, uh, I was uh, actually Sean Brackett was sent a uh, text message this morning, and so it kind of helps explain why I'm here and why Pastor Sean is not. But that's the reason. So let me read for you what he sent. And come on, really? There it is. Um, so I want to read you what he sent. These are his words. I'm not leaving anything out, and I'm not embellishing anything. So this is what, this is what Pastor Sean uh, sent at... Uh, uh, this morning. We received a beautiful and healthy baby boy one month early. He arrived on April 6th at 1.05 p.m. and weighed 6 pounds 9 ounces and was 17 inches long. Mommy and Daddy are doing well and are loving getting to know and snuggle with Noah Glenn. Gammy and Poppy are blessed beyond measure. I don't know if you could tell that from the picture. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, that's why I'm here. He texted me on Thursday morning and said, I'm leaving for Washington. Do you have a sermon for Sunday morning? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I do. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, that's why I'm here this morning. I'm going to do this uh, and, and share with you this morning from that. And part of what we are um, sharing this morning is about Palm Sunday. Excuse me, go back here. I'm going too fast there. Go back one. There we go. Thank you, guys. Um, so it's Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus came to town in Jerusalem. And we want to take a, a little bit of a look at that. There are all kinds of things that happen leading up to Good Friday and then leading up to uh, uh, his, his resurrection on Sunday. And I just want to remind you guys that in, in um, uh, celebration of Good Friday, we're doing our Stations of the Cross again this year. And where we have different stations out here along the prayer trail. And you can go and there's a booklet thing where you can uh, read the meditations for each one of these stations. It's from four to seven. You can come anytime during that. You can go to tacwriting.info to sign up for this. Adrienne is going to be out in the fellowship hall afterward with my laptop. And so if you want to sign up with her about uh, doing a guided tour, you can do that with her after the service out there. There's also self-guided tours. So you can just come get a booklet and you can come anytime between four and seven and walk the trail to the different stations and read the meditations just between you and the Lord and take that experience as well. There'll also be worship going on here in the auditorium uh, during that time as well. So you can kind of mix and match with that as you feel led to do. Um, so that, that is what is coming up this week. So what I want to do with you today is, is talk about this and look at this, uh, this time when Jesus came to town some 2,000 years ago into Jerusalem. What all was happening? What all was going on? What were in the people's minds? What were they thinking? How does that relate to us? What are some of the things that we can learn from their reactions and from their, and, and from their experiences there? It was a very special time when, when they came to town, when Jesus came to town. Some of you might remember this. I know Jill Rose remembers this. Picture? You recognize that? You were a child then. You were part of that. You were there in that experience. And I was three years old at that time. 
I don't know what that says about you. Um, I'll stop there, okay? I can't pick on Sonny this morning. I got to pick on Jill, you know, it works. Anyhow, yes. <laughs> this, is, this is when John F. Kennedy came to um, uh, dedicate Whiskey Town Dam, September 1963, uh, just, just a short time before he was um, tragically assassinated in Texas. And he is giving uh, that, um, that dedication there. And it was a very special time. Um, and it was, it was, the, the city and everything was a buzz with it. There was another time that we had uh, a president visit Reading. You might remember this. This was in 2008, July 2008. Um, president Bush, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was governor at that time, the blur behind them is Senator Dianne Feinstein. <laughs> That's the best picture I could get of this. And, and Congressman Wally Herger was also there as a part of it. And they came because we had had in 2008, we had all the wildfires that were all over the place here. And, and everything was just socked in, smoky. Of course, we haven't experienced anything like that since, right? <laughs> you know, at that time in 2008, that was kind of unheard of with all the smoke. Now it seems like every year we're dealing with it now. But this time he had come to survey all the damage and everything else. And, and this group of firefighters behind there was assembled to uh, be a welcoming contingent for him. There's somebody else in the group that you might recognize there. I had more hair then. A little more color, yeah. Yeah, there's a story with that. We'll leave that there. Um, yeah, this was in 2008. I was a, a little bit younger, and I was privileged to be a part of this group. And, and the short version of the story is they just came to us when we were out in the fire line and said, you guys are going to be the welcoming contingent for the president. Go to this motel. Do not leave. Do not call anybody. Really? And that was it. It was like they sequestered all of us. And then we, in order to go through all of this and to meet the president and the governor and all that, he had to go through several layers of security with, you know, with uh, Secret Service. I mean, it was, it was kind of awesome. But never in my wildest dreams would I ever thought that I would be standing this far away from the president of the United States, shaking a hand, looking at him in the eye, and him saying, thank you for all you've done. Not, let alone him, Governor Schwarzenegger, Senator Feinstein, and Congressman Herger. All four of them. I mean, how often does that come along in your life? Like, you know, I'm so good right now. <laughs> no, but it was a privilege. It was a privilege to be a part of that. And it was something special. And, and the, the city here in Reading, it was all abuzz with it. KRCR ran nonstop news coverage of it that whole day from you know, anticipating Air Forces One landing and all the way up through uh, the, the departure of it. I mean, it was just, it was a day-long thing. It was an awesome thing to see and be a part of. Well, just like there was fanfare that day, there was fanfare when Jesus came to town some 2,000 years ago. The people have been waiting for this for a long time. They were excited. They were ready to see the things begin to come to pass. Jesus had been about the countryside for about three years doing miracles and, and doing all kinds of works and teaching and things. And, 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 and now everything was coming to a culmination of his ministry here on earth. And so what I want to do is I want to take this journey with you through that triumphal entry on Sunday, all the way up through what we call the Passion Week, all the way up through to Good Friday. 
And I want to trace and track what was going on with the people. What was happening with Jesus during this time as well? And what are some of the things that we can learn from this? So if you have your Bibles, get them open to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read uh, through verse 11. I will also have it up here on the um, screen, so you can follow along there as well. But we're looking at the triumphal entry, and here, here's what we read. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Then they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It starts out, and we're going to break this down a little bit. It starts out with Jesus and his disciples arriving at Bethage. Bethage is, is about maybe two miles outside of Jerusalem. In between Bethage and, and Jerusalem is Bethany. So it's about a mile out of town. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus probably spent quite a bit of time there with them. Um, and so he knew Bethany well. And so the first thing that we see here is that Jesus instructs his two disciples. I want you to go on ahead into the village, which would be Bethany, ahead of us. And I want you to, to you'll find a, a donkey and a colt there on Tyam. And if anybody bothers you about it, just say that the Lord has need of them. Some commentators and, and, and scholars believe that Jesus prearranged this. Because he, he spent so much time in Bethany that he made preparations ahead of time to have this colt and this donkey there. I kind of think that Jesus just knew there was going to be a colt and a donkey tied up. And that he just went and said, you're going to find this. And when you do, just do it. And when somebody asks you, tell them the Lord needs it. And they're going to go, okay. That's, what I, that's how I think that all came down. And, and in this, this whole idea of asking to, to, to taking a donkey and then borrowing somebody's donkey, even asking for it, would be akin to like somebody coming and, and today asking you to borrow your car. I have your car and I want to take it to LA. And if anybody, has, if anybody asks you why they're taking it, Pastor Bob needs it. Of course, you ought to do that, right? <laughs> you might do it if I was taking it to the Enterprise area, but not to LA. But it would be, a, a, it could be akin to that kind of thing. If you have need of it, uh, just, you know, it's like taking the car. What's the significance of a donkey? Riding a donkey, when somebody would come into a, a city or a conquered area riding a donkey, it was a sign of reconciliation. That they were going to come in to reconcile what had been argued over or fought over. If they came riding on a horse, they were a warrior. And they were coming in with the, the, the sign of saying, I conquered you. I am going to deal with you that way. I'm not interested in reconciliation. I'm not interested in peace. I'm interested in conquering. 
Jesus is coming in on a donkey. Now, the Jews should have known this. This is going to be important later when we see their response to, to him coming. This fulfills the, the prophecy in Zechariah 9 that we read with our responsive reading this morning. It told us that the Savior was going to be one who comes riding on a donkey, lowly, peaceful. That he was going to be that kind of an interest, not the conquering warrior riding a horse. All of these point to the majesty of Jesus. Jesus is beginning to proclaim publicly his status and, and his right as, as king of kings and lord of lords to the public now. All of the miracles he's done before this had pointed all to that and to his authority. And now he's beginning to proclaim it publicly. Placing cloaks on the animal for Jesus to sit on is also significant because kings and, and, and those in, in, in important stature didn't ride bareback on an animal. But they would put a blanket or a cloak or something on the animal and then they would get on top of that to, to signify their majesty and their kingship, their, their lordship as it were. And Jesus did not ride bareback. It tells us that the disciples put the cloak on him. Then we have people gathering. What was going on here? Why, why were there so many people gathering? Well, this is the Passover celebration that is happening this week as well. The Sabbath that was coming up uh, after Good Friday was, was called a special Sabbath. The Sabbath that happened in the week of Passover was called a special Sabbath. And, and so people would journey from all over the regions to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Jerusalem, in estimates of time um, of Jesus... But without any of the feasts, without any of the festivities, without anything like that happening, the population of Jerusalem was estimated to be about 40,000 people, give or take. And Jerusalem wasn't a huge area, um, probably not as big as Reading, but its population was about half the size of Reading. But what happened in the feasts, especially Passover, the population of Jerusalem could swell to 250,000 people, in estimates are. That's a lot of people to put into a small area. And so there would be all kinds of activity and there would be all kinds of things happening. The, the group was made up of all kinds of different types of people. There were some who believed in Jesus. There were disciples of Jesus. There were people who were curiosity seekers. There were religious leaders from all over the area coming and converging on this point. There were people of ill repute all coming into this area as well. Taking, trying to take advantage of the crowds that would be there. So there was all kinds of people gathering for this Passover celebration. In John's gospel, we read about the fact that the people began, as Jesus was coming into town, they began to spread their coats and they began to spread palm branches on the ground as well. What was the sign of palm branches? The significance of palm branches was they were saying that we have now seen our nation coming to pass. Our nation is going to be restored. It was a sign of nationalism. And so you begin to see what the mindset of the people is. Jesus, they, they have heard about all of, the, all of the, 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 the miracles and all of the things that he has done to this point. And, and they've been waiting for years to be delivered from the oppression of Rome. That was their main concern. Their, the people, their main concern was not sin. Their concern was being delivered from the hand of Rome. And so here is a symbol of finally Jesus is coming to restore our nation, laying the palm branches down and, 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 and the donkey walking over them in that sign of nationalism. Finally, Rome is going to be kicked out. They're excited. They're shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Save us, oh high one. 
Save us from what? Save us from this occupation. Save us from this Roman oppression is most likely what they were thinking. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they shout. They are so excited about their political deliverance from Rome. But if they had read their Bibles, that they had the time, Isaiah 53 was part of that. Isaiah 53 speaks about the suffering servant Messiah, about Jesus, how he would come and bear their sins on a tree. By his stripes, they would be healed. They would, if they also paid attention to some of the miracles that Jesus had been doing to this point, they would also know that his primary mission was to come for the forgiveness of sins, to be that perfect sacrifice so that we could have that restored relationship with our Heavenly Father that was broken at the fall. In Mark chapter 2, we read about the healing of the paralytic. And you know the story. When he's laid down to Jesus' feet, what's the first thing that Jesus says to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't, doesn't, do anything, doesn't say anything else, doesn't heal him right off the bat. The greatest need the paralytic had was his sins to be forgiven. In, uh, later on, in, in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, we read about Jesus being anointed by the woman with the perfume, and, and she's so contrite, and she's, and, and she's washing his feet with her hair and doing all these things. And what's the first thing that Jesus says to her? After the disciples complain about, well, why are you letting her do this? All this perfume could have been sold for a price and money, and the money could have been used to feed the poor. He says, she's doing the right thing. And then he turns to her and says, woman, your sins are forgiven. You'd think they would remember these things that, and, and hearing about them that the greatest need that mankind and womankind have is the forgiveness of sins. And that they would begin to think that, well, maybe that's really what we need, not deliverance from Rome. But no. And so we see in this opening passage of the triumphal entry, the people are excited. They're anticipating something's going to happen. They maybe are misunderstanding what is really going to happen, but they're excited until five days later. Something changes five days later. The whole tone of the crowd changes incredibly five days later. And this is going to be found in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 15 to verse 26. And you can follow along again on the screen as I read. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in the dream because of him. But the chief priests and, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! 
When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Five days earlier, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Five days later, crucify him, crucify him. What changed? Same people are there. What had happened? To understand this, we need to look at what Jesus was doing in Jerusalem and just who Barabbas is. Here's a partial list of events that you can find in your Bible as you read the, the Passion Week narratives of all the things that Jesus was doing. Some of them. And I'm not going not gonna to read all these for you, but if you look at those up there, do you find any activity or teaching or anything at all about Rome? There's not one thing about Rome. Jesus is off teaching about the Holy Spirit. He's off teaching about um, prayer. He's off teaching uh, uh, parables and different kinds of things. He's healing. He's, he's having his authority questioned. So he's engaging in some debates with the religious leaders. Everything is focused on the people and, and the people of Jerusalem, not, not Rome. What gives? So when Jesus comes to town on Sunday, they're all, Hosanna, he's finally going to kick Rome out. Monday comes along. And they're like, well, okay, he just needs to get acclimated to town here. He's going to get to Rome. It's going to get there. I'm taking a little license here if you haven't figured that out. <laughs> and then on, on Tuesday, he, he, the, the people start to go, what, what's he doing? He's, he's teaching here and he's not addressing Rome and all this stuff. What's happening? Wednesday is kind of what we call the silent day where not really much happens. And, and, and so uh, the people kind of wondering what's going on. Maybe by Thursday, the religious leaders are starting to stir the people up. They're getting restless. And they're finally saying, look, Jesus is not going to take Rome out. We've got to do something else. Maybe that's what had changed. Maybe that's what had changed here. Who's Barabbas? Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. Barabbas was in prison. We read this in Mark. Chapter 15, verse 7. He was in prison for insurrection and murder that he possibly committed during that insurrection. What was the charge against Jesus? Citing an insurrection. You see, Pilate may have been looking at this. And, and his custom was uh, every, every year, um, at one time of the year, to, to release to the people a prisoner that they wanted. Because Pilate's trying to find ways to keep the people happy. He wasn't a popular guy. And if he continued in, with this unpopularity, Rome was going to replace him, call him back, and he might be put in prison or worship, might even be killed. And so Pilate is trying to keep these people in order. He's trying to appease them. He's trying to, to keep them happy. And one of the ways to do that was to release to them on a yearly basis a prisoner of their choosing. And so Pilate has Jesus before him. Now you remember reading in, when we read the passage there that Pilate's wife had something to say to him. Basically said, don't have anything to do with this guy. Did Pilate listen? No, didn't, did he? One of the first instances we have in scripture of a husband not listening to the wife who should have. 
he's caught. He's got the people there. He's got his wife here. He's got this going on. What do I do? So he's thinking, okay. Again, this is, this is how I, I think maybe what's playing on in his mind. Scripture doesn't tell us this. But he says, if I, if I take Barabbas, he's a known insurrectionist. He's already caused trouble for the people. It's going to be black and white. There's no evidence to show that Jesus did anything wrong. That's why Pilate kept asking, well, why do you want him crucified? What did he do? I can't find anything that he's guilty of. So he's going to get Barabbas. This guy has all the evidence is there. It's very plain. The people know who he is. To, I think in Pilate's mind, he's thinking this is a slam dunk. They're going to ask for Jesus. Because there's nothing, Jesus didn't do anything. Barabbas has already caused trouble. We don't, and they don't want more trouble. But Pilate also knew why Jesus was handed over. We read that in the passage. He was handed over because of the selfish ambition of the religious leaders. Pilate knew that they had an impure motive of why they handed Jesus over. Because of their selfish lust for power and control. And they wanted Jesus out of the way. And here was their opportunity to do that. And so there it is. He's standing there and, and, and he's thinking this is going to go. But they say, no, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. We read in scriptures about what was going to happen in the nation of Israel toward the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And they rejected him. Isaiah 53, verses 3, 6. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And finally, in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is probably why Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he came in. We read in Luke's account, in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, this. As he approached Jerusalem... And saw the city, he wept over it and said, If even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and then the children written your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And this was his, this was Jesus' prophecy about only what was going to happen to Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and then subsequently the, the siege at Masada, and where they were, um, all of the, the, many of the Jews then were, were held in this fortress at Masada, and they were trying to, to, to outlast the, the Romans who were sieging them. The Romans built a big siege ramp up and finally overtook uh, the city and killed everyone basically inside. And Jesus is weeping over because all they had to do was recognize that he was the coming Messiah to save them from their sins and to restore to them that relationship that was lost at the fall. 
When we were back in Genesis, Pastor Sean sharing from, from Genesis chapter 3 about that one choice to listen to the enemy. He said, did God really say that wasn't good for food? And was tempted with that and then acted on it and started a chain of events that go to this day. The first thought from our study here that I, that I came up with this as I was going through this is this. What kind of expectations do we have as Jesus comes to us? come to our hearts see the expectations of the people were Jesus is going to get us out of Rome and when he wasn't doing what they wanted they looked for something else they were they were stirred to that to say okay we Jesus you're not going to do what we want so we're going to go with Barabbas because we know that Barabbas had done this before and he'll do it again and maybe this time he will overthrow Rome and we'll get the Romans out you're not doing it so get out of my life I don't want anything to do with you Now, maybe we're not quite that drastic when it comes to this, but how often do we come to the Lord and, and we say, Lord, I, I need you to do this. This is what I'm expecting. I have this expectation that you are going to perform this way. You're going to do this. And then when he doesn't do it, when he doesn't answer the prayer the way we think, how discouraged do we get? And are we tempted to take control of ourselves? One of the bumper stickers that drives me nuts you haven't heard it yet, wait a minute, is this, that Jesus is my co-pilot. I hate that one. You know, I mean, right? If Jesus is the co-pilot, that means I'm the pilot and I'm in charge of the aircraft and Jesus, when I need to consult you, I'll do that, right? Okay, you know, Jesus, put the landing gear down. That'd be a good thing for you to do, right? I mean, that, that's what, no. If, at, at, the very, at, the, at the very best, I'm going to be the co-pilot and Jesus is going to be the pilot, right? And if Jesus wants me to do something, he's going to tell me to do it. And I'm going to do what he says because he's in command, right? And he knows how to fly that plane way better than I do, I'm tell you that. That is what we need to remember. The people in Jerusalem were not happy because Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted. They said, give us Barabbas. When, we sh when they should have said, give us Jesus. Because we recognize that sin is our greatest need. See, and before you be too hard on them, the, the Jews had all kinds of feasts and all kinds of sacrifices and everything they did for the propitiation of sins. And they, and they were told by the Pharisees and everything that this was enough. So, you know, Jesus is talking about saving from sin. We don't need salvation from our sins. We got our feast. We got our sacrifice. We're good there. What we need is Rome out. That's what we need. That was their mindset. They should have seen that sin was their greatest need because as the scriptures spoke about it. I, uh, several years ago, my, uh, my uh, brother and his wife, about 20 years ago now, had their second child was going to be born to them. And before the child was born, we were, um, we, I got a phone call from my mom saying that um, the girl, her name, they already knew it was a girl and they already named her Michelle. Um, they knew that when she was going to be born, she was going to have this heart defect. And it was a serious heart defect, such as the fact the doctor said that 
uh, if when she's born, she's going to have to have several surgeries, probably for the next 20 years of her life and things. And there's no guarantee that any of those will work. There's not even any guarantee, guarantee that she would even survive the first surgery um, because of the things that were at the time. It just wasn't uh, advanced enough to do all this. The doctors encouraged my brother and sister-in-law to not do the operations. And my brother and sister-in-law agreed with that. And so Michelle was born. And she lived about six days. And I remember prior to going down there and visiting them, prior to when she was born, I walked around the parking lot out here. And um, I began to pray that the Lord would bring healing to Michelle. The doctors had written her off. And so he could heal this. He could just one touch. He could heal this heart. He could bring this little girl into this world and just defy all of the odds of medical science. And I was convinced that God was going to answer that prayer because I also said my, my brother and sister-in-law weren't believers. My parents aren't believers. And I thought, this is an awesome moment for you, Lord, to rein them in to where they can see Jesus and they can give their lives over to him. I mean, if I was doing it, this is how I do it. This would be perfect. This would be it, right? So we go down to see Michelle. She's there, and my wife's holding her. And Michelle breathed her last breath in my wife's arms. And I, later on, had a little argument with God about that. Lord, you blew it. This was a perfect opportunity. What are you doing? And then he reminded me of a little verse. And I'm not saying I have all the answers about this, but he reminded me of this. My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, declared the Lord. As painful and as hard as that moment is to, to understand and to go through and perceive, that comes oftentimes where our testing occurs. Do we really trust and believe in who Jesus really is and what he's going to do and carry us through? Or have we just been paying him lip service to that point? And are we waiting to say, give me Barabbas instead of give me Jesus? It was a little bit of a wrestling match. God won. And he brought peace to me. Like I said, I still don't understand everything about that. But I know he's got it figured out. And it's all going to be for the glory of him. Do we see Jesus as the Isaiah 53 Savior? The suffering servant Messiah? The one who's going to come and hang on the cross for your sins and my sins? Or do we see him as something else? Which brings me to the second thought in this study. Do we see Jesus as just a good teacher? Or do we see him as Lord? Let's take a look at a couple of passages here. One, the first one is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 49. This is Judas and, and coming to Jesus, and Jesus is going to be arrested in the garden. I want you to, to just follow this for a second and pay attention especially to the last verse. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him. Uh, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now go back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 26. A couple of verses back to Matthew 26, verses 20 and 25. We read this. 
When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely, Lord, not I. Jesus replied, one of The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. I want you to notice here, both times when Judas responds to Jesus and talks to Jesus, he addresses him as Rabbi, not Lord. Never once anywhere in Scripture when Judas is talking with Jesus, does he ever call him Lord? He always calls him rabbi. Which begs the question, did, did Judas just consider Jesus just a good teacher, but not Lord? And so, so what is it with us? Do we consider Jesus to be just a good teacher, or do we consider him to be Lord? What's the difference? Lord means somebody that's Lord of your life, is you give them control. You're putting your faith and trust in them that they're going to be doing the right thing. There are many good teachers. And there are many who look at Jesus as a good teacher. Right along up there with Confucius and Muhammad and others. But Jesus was much more than a good teacher. Now, he is a teacher, and he is a good teacher, but he's not just a good teacher. He is Savior and Lord. He is worthy of us putting our faith and trust in him. Amen. So that all that is there, no matter what comes our way, he will carry us through it. Isaiah 55, 8. I, I shared this earlier. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways are your ways, declares the Lord. He has everything figured out. It's just for us to put our faith and trust in that and to follow where he leads. Proverbs 16.9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. You can add to that also Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. One of the first verses I ever memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We can put our faith and trust in Jesus to carry us through. Even when it seems like he's not dealing with Rome, maybe that isn't the greatest need that we have. Maybe the greatest need we have is over here. Jesus says in Matthew, excuse me, in John, he says that if we ask for anything in, in, in his name, according to his will, he will do it for us. You know what it means to ask for something in, in somebody's name? It just doesn't mean just assigning a label to it. It means that you are asking in accordance with all who they are. Their whole total personality, their beliefs, everything about them. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, when we say, and in his name we pray, we are saying, Jesus, with all who you are, with your perfect will, with all that you understand, I give this to you. We are echoing the prayer that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane during this Passion Week. When he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, of course it's possible. He's God. He can pass the cup from him. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, yet not my will be done, but yours. 
Do we pray in accordance with Jesus' name for his will to be done and not ours? That, that should be what we are doing if we truly see him as Lord and not just a good teacher. And then this passage. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us some very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Jesus wants us to trust him as Lord, not just as a good teacher not just as a rabbi, so that we might have life and have it to the full. So that our greatest needs can be addressed because we've surrendered ourselves to him. So that we see our life situations, whether our families, our jobs, our communities, wherever it is that we are, that we trust him that the path that he is leading before us is the right one. That we, that we don't take and have his our, our, his expectations conform to our expectations, but we conform our expectations to him. All right, as the worship team comes up, let me close with this. Satan wants us to only see Jesus as a good teacher. He wants us to see that Barabbas is a better option. He wants to steal and destroy that which Jesus has come to seek and save. He wants to rob us of life. Trusting Jesus as Lord and surrendering him, that can, that can be risky because it means we're not in control. It means that we're giving up control. We're, we're putting up our hands and surrender to him. And that's in part when we lift up our hands and praise him, we're surrendering, saying, all I am, Lord, here I am. I'm totally open. I'm yours. Everything I am, everything I've got, I'm yours, Lord. We've given up control. Jesus promises never to leave or forsake us, to not let us drown in the storms of life, but to bring us through. It may not always be the way that we think we need to come through. It may not always be what we anticipated, how Jesus was going to walk down the street and deal with the things in, in our lives but he will do it the way that's good and right for us. So let's not conform him to our expectations, but let's conform our expectations to him, for he is Lord. Amen. Father, as we leave from this place today, I ask that you just continue put into each one of our hearts and minds the truth that you are Lord. That you would help us examine each of our expectations. And then we come to you wanting what you have for us and wanting to conform those expectations to your will and not the other way around. And then as we journey through this Passion Week once again this year, then we'll be reminded of that incredible sacrifice that you gave for us that you went to that place on the cross for each one of us so we would not have to go there. And you entered Jerusalem knowing that. You knew what was ahead. You knew how people would despise you and reject you. And yet out of 
so great a love for us, you did it anyway. So thank you, Jesus, so much for that. Thank you for all that you have done and restoring to us a relationship that we can have with you again. A relationship that is full of life and is one that we can trust no matter what comes our way. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for coming this morning. Uh, prayer will be available up here at the uh, front if you'd like to have prayer. Also, Adriana will be out in Fellowship Hall to sign you up for Stations of the Cross if you're interested in the guided tours for that. God bless you.